the fishing side, I just love the, I just love the solitude of fishing. I just love getting out there. I love the challenge. I like the technology behind things. I like learning. You know, I learn how to fish every day. I learn something different every single time I go fishing. It's ne- two days are never the same. This is Fish Tales, a seafood podcast. I'm John Sussman. Whilst most 13-year-olds might spend their birthday with a party shared among family or friends, Andrew Mirosh was battling a gale in a small fishing boat. Always keen on fishing, as a young boy, Andrew would try his luck on the beach or off the rocks at Stradbroke Island with his grandparents or by himself at night. He always wanted to be a fisherman. But Andrew trained and has been a very successful chef for more than 40 years. In 1995, he temporarily hung up the apron for a fishing rod to follow his first dream of becoming a professional fisherman. The kitchen lured him back, however, and still professionally fishing during the day, he developed a successful seafood restaurant on Stradbroke Island, selling plates of his catch, whatever the species or cut. Andrew is a fierce environmentalist, driven as much by sustainability as by the cuisine he creates from seafood. My name's Andrew Mirosh. I'm a commercial fisherman and a chef. I've been a chef for 40 years and a commercial fisherman for 30 years. At the moment, I'm sitting in my garage surrounded by all my fishing gear and um, waiting for my boat to return from the guy who's fixing it and then uh, the weather to get better up here. It's been raining non-stop. So I'm not far from North Stradbroke Island, so I'm on the water and uh, yeah, and I fish between Brisbane and 1770, I guess, is as far north as I go. Fishing-wise, I've got a mentor on Stradbroke Island who was a commercial fisherman, Peter Spinner. So he's fished since not in, in the 70s and stuff. And um, he took me under his wing when I was 13 years old and took me out for a... Um, for a commercial trip and I was hooked ever since. So I worked for the first 13 or 14 years of my life as a chef and um, to make enough money to go fishing for 10 years. And when the, when the money ran out, I went back fishing again. I went back, sorry, cooking again. So till I had a bit more money that I could go fishing again. So yeah, it's been a long relationship with me and fishing. My grandmother had a house at Strutty, which um, we still retain in our family. And uh, she was a keen fisherman and I was just obsessed, absolutely obsessed with fishing and everything about fish and seafood and all my life. I finished school and my father was a, a doctor who was also a migrant. So he got here when he was 11 years old and he was a self-made man. And I did grade 12 and I got into university and he, um, I wanted to do vet science. So I didn't quite get the score for vet science. So he said, oh, you know, you go back and do grade 12 again and do that. And anyway, I met this girl whose brother was a chef and um, I looked and went to the house a fair bit and um, he was having a great time. He always seemed to be going to parties after work and you know, drinking and doing all the good stuff you want to do when you're 18. And so I thought, oh, well, I love cooking and I've always been around. My mother's a very good cook and my grandmother and I've always been around at restaurants and things. So I um, told my father I wasn't going back to, to um, university or to school, which he was very angry about. And then um, I, ended up, I applied for 55 apprenticeships, and on 56 a day, I was supposed, supposed to go back and start school again. I actually got a, um, my first interview, and I got the job and went from there. Mastering a kitchen can be difficult, but generally there are a few external, life-threatening elements that affect the day-to-day operations. Inshore fishing, however, can often be dangerous and sometimes life-threatening, especially for those new to the business. When I first moved to Australia, I had no idea how to launch a boat or I didn't know much about anything really, but I ended up buying this tractor and um, in those days, well, still now they launch off the beach. So you reverse into the surf and you you run your boat off and then you go and park your tractor and you take off through the break. And um, I had 
absolutely no idea. So it's quite a miracle I survived 10 years without a major mishap. But um, I've, I had a heap of mishaps in my life. You know, everyone who fishes, something goes wrong at some stage. But yeah, launching through the surf with no experience on days when it was four and six foot was, was pretty frightening, but rewarding. It was really rewarding. And I, love, I still love it. I still love the adrenaline rush of doing it. My customers in the early days were generally the, the restaurants I was working for. When I went to, um, when I was at Stratty, I used to sell to um, some of the local, there was a couple of um, shops there, retail shops there. So I used to sell my fish directly. We'd drive the tractor in the afternoon and then we'd go back and we'd do it again the next day. And then when I had, when I had my own restaurants, I used to, um, when I had Blue Water there, for example, I would come in at five o'clock and um, drive the tractor up to the front door and uh, unload the fish with the chefs I had working there. And then by 6.30 or 6 o'clock, I'd have a line of people waiting to eat fresh local fish around the corner. So it was a very successful marketing exercise for me, that's for sure. A day as a fisherman can mean long days of hard physical work in trying conditions. So too can working in a kitchen be both physically and mentally demanding. Doing both jobs in one day seems to be the work of a masochist. If I'm leaving from here, if I'm leaving, I've got two scenarios, but if I'm leaving from my house here, I get up at three o'clock, the boat's packed the night before I put the boat in, I scoot across the bay. It takes me about an hour and a half to get to um, to where I start fishing and then um, I'll fish till all day and I'll cover probably 200 kilometres in a day, 250 depending on where I fish and what I'm fishing for. and. Um, I'll usually come home just before dark or or if it's a nice night with a bit of moon, I'll try to hang out there for a while longer. But I come through a bar, the South Passage Bar, which can be pretty frightening at night. Uh, fish solo. I do have a couple of deckies, but I prefer these days my own company when I'm fishing. And then uh, if I go up north, I tow the boat, which is six or seven hours up north. And I put the boat in and I head offshore for, I usually spend three days. So I deck load fuel and the boat can hardly get on the plane. And we go about 70 miles offshore and we'll... um. We'll just hang out there till we're, we're either full or we've run out of fuel. Or we're getting low on food and fuel. And then we come home. And then I drive back to Brisbane and I sell my fish in Brisbane. Yeah, now I mainly sell to um, Bayside Seafoods, which is a, a very, very good business. specialised in local products. So he's my main my main uh, person I sell to. But I do sell to a few other few restaurants directly and whatever else. But it's much easier just to pull in for me now and because um, I don't do it. 12 months a year anymore because I'm often overseas so I've just got a guy who just buys everything I catch and he never argues, never whinges about the price and you know he pays me so it's, it's not a bad system. Well I love Trevally I think Trevally is one of the real, you know there's tea leaf Trevally or Silvers or Goldens I think they're really underrated fish, I think they're one of the best, I think they're a great sashimi fish or a numbers fish, I think they're a really good smoker, if you want to smoke anything they're just one of the best smoking fish you can possibly get and I even like them skinned and, and grilled. I just think they're a beautiful fish. You know, if you treat them like, a, like the Japanese do and brush some soy and some ginger and whatever over them, just lightly grill them, I think they're really, really hard to beat. But I also like, I like everything. I eat, I'll have a go at most fish. There's, there's very little I won't have a go at, so. Andrew is no ordinary cook. He's manned the pans and built some of the most highly acclaimed restaurants in both Queensland and now the Caribbean. To say he is a master chef is an understatement. I had a couple of restaurants in Brisbane. I first started at Bribe Island in a seafood restaurant there. That's where I started my apprenticeship. So I was an island on an island once again. It seems to be a lot of uh, me and islands. I work in the Caribbean and uh, I work on an island there as well. So yeah, and I've got a house at Strabroke Island. So yeah, it's a strange thing. Then um, I went. I, 
finished my apprenticeship and I went overseas and then I came back. I ended up working for um, a guy called Russell Armstrong and David Pugh and Vincent Ray, who in the 80s and, and uh, early 80s, Vincent was very, very famous and a very, very good operator of um, restaurants. And anyway, the two, the two chefs I work with both uh, left within six weeks and I ended up running the show with, uh, I didn't even know how to make a sauce or a stock or whatever else. So anyway... I muddled my way through that and we won Best Restaurant and we had three chef's hats for years. And then I left there and I opened a place called Two Small Rooms in Tuong with Michael Conrad, who was also a very well-known restaurateur, and um, did that for a few years and we did pretty well and got a couple of chef's hats and Best New Restaurant again. And then uh, Michael bought me out and I went fishing for 12 months. I was starting to get the fishing bug again, so I spent 12 months working on trawlers in the bay just so I could learn a bit more about... Um, you know, seafood and how to handle seafood and prawns and what we were actually catching there. And then I went back and I opened another restaurant called About Face in Brisbane and um, that went pretty well. We won Best Restaurant and Three Chefs Hats again and the whole thing. So um, I got the itch again after four or five years and I, I moved over to Australia and I bought a fishing boat and a tractor and I was launching off the beach chasing Spanish mackerel and reef fish and I did that for 10 years and I also ended up owning a restaurant at Strabro called Blue Water Bistro, which went reasonably well as well so and then I got married and had a few kids and had to come back and start to get serious again so I went and worked for Siramay Winery and I worked there for 14 years and then um, all this time I had a fishing license I had a commercial license so I was fishing and I was supplying restaurants and and Siramay with my own product which was quite unique in those days as far as I knew there were no other chefs doing it there were a few guys at takeaways who were fishermen who were doing it but I believe I was any chef who was actually using his own product and I did it because I wanted to be legal I didn't want to be a black marketer so um and that worked very well for me I used to have lines of people of people waiting to um to order the specials after come in fishing for a couple of days so it, it was a unique experience and my customers really really got into it and they really appreciated it and I, I got an opportunity to sell them lesser known species of fish rather than just you know snapper and all the things that everyone wants to eat and, and red throat and uh, coral trout and things I got I got my customers eating trevally and um, scad and and all, all the things that were considered to be trash fish but it created a really big market and people actually now seek out those fish which is nice Travelling across the world to start a restaurant can be a challenge. Doing it on a remote island with limited supplies of fresh food demands a chef to be creative, patient and committed to the local environment, people and the produce. Oh, it's very, it's very, very upmarket. There's nothing like it in Australia. The resort I work in is um, four-star Forbes Resort, so it's, it's very high-end US, European customers. The rate around a thousand dollars a day upwards just for a room and then um the villas at christmas time are between ten and thirteen thousand dollars a day for the villas that the resort owns as well it's um it's a unique environment it's um it's busy uh food is hard to get there most of the food comes from the u.s so you've got to cultivate um relationships with local guys like the fishermen i deal with supply all my lobsters and my conch so with the the national dish of the island is conch which is a big giant sea snail um and the lobsters are spiny lobsters and groper a lot of groper and um, red snapper is what they mainly use there but they also catch um wahoo most same same pelagis we get here almost wahoo marlin yellowfin tuna blackfin tuna uh, albacore, all, all those sort of fish on the top and down the bottom it's usually things like jobfish mostly because we're fishing deep water, we're fishing 700 feet to um, 
probably 1,400 feet as, as deep as we, we fish for them. But, um, yeah, all those job fish, those weird-looking things. At first, they didn't see the need to do it. They just thought they've been doing it their way for years and, you know, it's, it's 35 degrees there and the fish will be all right because it'll, it'll get eaten in a day or two. And we, we handle things differently and um, I changed the whole regime in the hotel. The regime used to be, and it is on the island, was get fresh fish, you know, it hasn't been in ice, cut it as fast as you can, wrap it in, in glad wrap or put it in a Ziploc bag and throw it in the freezer. And then when you get an order for it, you pull it out of the freezer, you put it in a sink full of hot water and you um, cook it from there. So we've... We've got a, a fishmonger, a butcher who cuts all our fish first. We vacuum pack the fish. We don't freeze it. We've got a um, a big, big 800-litre esky inside our cauldron that's packed full of ice every day, and we layer the fish in the vacuum in the ice and our conch and our prawns and everything else we use. So we, we're a non-freeze um, operation there, which has been a very big change. But as for the local fishermen, yeah, they're getting better prices. I pay them, I pay them above market for looking after the fish and I'll give them ice if they need ice as well and bits and pieces but they've embraced it because they can see it's worth more money to them. Now I've got the three or four guys who supply the resort I work in are all red hot. They're, they're doing a really good job on the fish so we're the only one really in the whole area getting fresh local fish regularly in good condition. Like many small owner operators in commercial fishing, Andrew is fearful of the future. Reduced access increased costs and seemingly limited appreciation for how special his catch is. His fears are shared by many in the industry. Quite look at where I, I lived and I still have a house, there's always been a fishing community. In the in the 50s, 60s, 70s and even early 80s, there was quite a lot of commercial fishermen and it was all based on um, the Spanish mackerel migration and, um, and snapper. But um, there's probably now on the island not even counting me, I wouldn't even count myself as being a strategy fisherman anymore, but there's probably only line fishermen, two or three part-timers left on the whole the whole place. And um, it's a bit sad, really. So fresh local fish there has become a thing of the past due to, you know, quotas and all the problems that are happening in the market and with, with the fisheries and things. Supply is always an issue now. Well, it put a big hole in my, my business is based on snapper fishing so i've lost a full month between mid-july and mid-august where i can't retain a snapper or pearl perch so that's taken one third of my snapper income out which would have been supplied to local restaurants it's no longer getting there so to fill the gap on my boat's just turning up um to fill the gap people are importing stuff from new zealand and you know they're using frozen stuff from from in the north northern territory and you know all, all sorts of different things now which is i find it sad when you live in a place as rich in biodiversity as we are in in, in queensland in particular that we can't even eat our own fresh fish i, I fish i fish the barrier reef a bit the southern end and um i own a bit of quota and whatever else and um i think the coral trout are probably thicker than I've ever seen them. I don't think I've ever seen as many coral trout and the red throat lip uh, emperors as well seem to be very thick. Uh, the red emperor there, if you want to chase them, and I think Spanish, particularly the further north you go, seem to be in a very, very healthy state. So I, I, I'm not sure what it's what a, what a lot of it's about, but you know, we, until until we know what the amateurs and the wrecks are taking, it's very hard to um to regulate a small percentage of the community who are professional fishermen. My honest thoughts, I think it's doomed in, in Queensland and probably Australia. I think it, the wild-caught seafood is going to become such a, such a luxury due to the, you know, the, the number of fishermen who are fishing commercially is dwindling very, very rapidly because um, it's, it's quite an expensive business to be in. And um, 
the prices are going through the roof. I'm getting twice what I was getting two years ago for whole Spanish mackerel. So, so it's going to become a real luxury item, unfortunately, where it was always the affordable thing where you go to the fish and chip shop and grab a piece of Spanish and chips and it costs you six bucks or eight bucks or something. It's, that's, those days are well gone. Every fisherman has an unforgettable story. It seems to go with the territory that they experience the unbelievable on just another day in the office. I was I was fishing with my young fellow, he's now 18, he was about eight. I had an English mate, he said, oh, I want to catch a marl. I said, oh, it's January, we'll go and catch a marl. I don't want to catch him particularly, but you know, when we chased him, we, we hooked quite a big one and um, he was on the rod for about 15 or 20 minutes and my son had the, the, the camera and he was, he was filming it and um, we caught it beside the boat and it tail walked and it actually jumped. It was a big one too, it was about oh, 200 pounds, I reckon. He jumped into the boat, landed on the fish box with two of us, or three of us in the boat. My son's just throwing the, the iPad and got out of the way, which is a good move. And the fish is thrashed around, jumped back over the side and swam off. And we had to fight it again for the 20 minutes. So anyway, we ended up really catching, catching one for him. So that was pretty good. Then I've had, I've had things like sharks take off my trim tabs. I'd be lifting a fish out of the water and hadn't seen a bull shark that was up in the reef. A bull shark comes running up and just smashes in the back of the boat and I take off and to move and the boat's feeling a bit funny and anyway I got into shore and the shark had torn my whole trim tab off so I was one trim tab short without even realising. Um, I've been bitten by Spanish mackerel five or six times and I've dropped big fish on the floor and you know they thrash around. I've had my toe nearly removed once and my knee stitched up and so they're pretty dangerous things to fish for at times. There are plenty of chefs who love what they do and there are plenty of fishermen who love what they do. There are a few, however, who combine both in a single career. The fishing side, the cooking side, I, I love both. I, I both love equally. Um, the cooking side, now I'm enjoying training um, young chefs to come through. I've had some pretty famous ones come through. You know, Martin Betts worked for me and quite a few of the chefs who've done well in, in their lives have all spent time with me when I was younger. But on, in the Caribbean, I'm trying to create a culture of... Um, chefs there and create a, a Caribbean style cuisine in the country I work in that's a blend of you know Australian techniques French techniques and Caribbean spicing and using fresh local so that's working really well the restaurant that I um set up and rebranded is Indigo which is named after my second daughter and it's um number one on TripAdvisor in the whole Turks and Caicos Islands so it's going very very well can't complain the fishing side I just love I just love the solitude of fishing I just love getting out there I love the challenge. I like the technology behind things. I like learning. You know, I learn how to fish every day. I learn something different every single time I go fishing. It's ne two days are never the same. I first met Andrew Mirosh over 35 years ago and have maintained a huge respect for his drive, enthusiasm, and absolute passion for both seafood, cooking, and sustainability. He is an inspiration and true champion of the sea and a master of the pans. This is Fishtales, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production, I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Fishtales Seafood Podcast or email us at fishtalespodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.